Welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade. For trade nerds and normal human beings alike, I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here, as always, with my trusted colleague, friend, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim? Hello, Brian. It's really going to be interesting today because we've got a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, we have taken, uh, welcome back to Embargoed. We appreciate everybody tuning in. Hopefully, uh, wherever you are listening to this, uh, we're recording this on Friday, December 11th. Um, Hanukkah just started last night. Uh, the holidays here in the, the holiday season in the States, I think, is about to kick into full swing. Um, we know from talking to folks around the world that that is also <laughs> imminently upon us uh, all across the globe. So wherever you're listening, hope you're doing well and getting ready, hopefully to enjoy a, a nice holiday season. Um, we are, uh, let, let us dispense with the, the normal uh, preliminary matters. So again, as always, we're not giving legal advice. We're not discussing any confidential information. We are just here to two humble podcast uh, co-hosts giving our own opinions uh, on a variety of topics that we spend way too much time thinking about uh, day in and day out. Um, we are, uh, so just before we get started, so obviously we took a slightly longer than planned break after the last episode, our post-election pod um, that was due to some planning logistics and other uh, issues. But what we're going to do now is uh, today, which is episode 19, we're recording uh, this will be up uh, the week of December 14th, uh, and then there will be another year-end top 10 episode that will be going up the week between Christmas and New Year's here in the States. Uh, that is the plan. So that'll round out 2020. We will have hit 20 episodes for 2020, uh, which is pretty remarkable considering I think we did all but the first three at home, right? What do yep. we, how many did we do in the studio? We did three in the studio, and all the rest of them have been at home. It's been amazing because when we, we did yeah. them in the studio and we were, I think, probably, I, I know that I was intimidated by the idea of actually having to record these remotely. And then all of a sudden we didn't have any choice. And now I'm not sure I would even know how to find the studio anymore. Right. The, the microphone would probably be, you know, we'd be bumping into it uh, repeatedly and it would just be awkward to be, uh, not that we don't want to, you know, see Matt in person, uh, our producer at some point, but um you know, yeah, it has worked out very well. The setup um, has been great. And uh, here we are sort of recording episodes 19 and 20 from home um, and uh, getting ready to pivot uh, to 2020 to 2021, which is, I think, something everybody is uh, all too eager to do. It's so, such a strange year. Yeah, but it has been a strange year, but we are we have almost survived it. We hope everybody out there has as well, uh, relatively unscathed, healthy, both mentally, physically, psychologically, all the rest of it. Uh, so with that, let us jump in. Let me give the roadmap real quick for this episode. We're only covering kind of a discrete set of topics, a couple of a couple of pretty significant things that have come up in the past couple of weeks since we recorded the last episode, which we're going to cover. And then uh, as, as we said, we're going to reserve um, a, a lot for the final episode of the year where we're going to kind of recap and do a top 10 um, for the year. So today, what we're going to cover is as follows. We're going to start with the new executive order focused on um, securities investments, 
in uh, communist Chinese military companies that just was released, uh, was issued about a week after I think we recorded our last episode. Uh, so it's been now in place for almost a month. We're going to start with that. We're then going to talk about one of our favorite topics that has been occupying Tim and I both quite a bit for the last couple of weeks, which is the, we're, we're calling it the phantom military end user list because Ooh. it, because it, but because it exists, but it doesn't exist. And so we'll talk about that a bit more a um, from our friends at BIS. And then uh, we will end the last uh, main section of the pod. We will, we'll ask the very deep existential question. What's up with tip TikTok? Uh, and uh, maybe we you, should make we should make a TikTok so that we can we can we sh- do that we sh- segment or we could turn that segment into a TikTok. That's a great that's a great call. We could really um, you know not that our you know our our listenership our viewership is has been steadily growing. We're happy to say, but we could really amplify if we could get if we could go viral on TikTok talking about TikTok. The so, kids the kids like. The sanctions. The the youth, as they say, are very into the sanctions. So um, we'll end with that. Uh, and then in the lightning round, we're going to talk about the recent um, assassination of Iran's top nuclear scientist and what uh, the implications of that may be for the Biden administration and plans to potentially re-engage on the JCPOA. And then we're going to look at a couple of um, just earlier this week, a few um, sanctions designations targeted at China, specifically aimed at uh, activities relating to Hong Kong and North Korea, and just sort of reflect on that briefly. So that's going to be the episode. So three main topics, two lightning round topics, and then we will call that a wrap and we will move into uh, our year-end uh, pod. So uh, anything else before we kick off, Tim, or are we ready to, ready to roll? I think we're ready to roll on this. My only observation as you walked through the roadmap is that this is an almost entirely China episode, which is Shock- shockingly. Yes, yep. shockingly. It would be it, it would not be embargoed in 2020 if we weren't spending most of our time talking about China. So with that, let's go ahead and, and get started. Uh, so item number one, which is, as I said, it's executive order 13959, which relates to uh, securities investments in Chinese uh, in uh, communist Chinese military companies. So this is this was issued on uh, November 12, um, and uh, this was sort of long. This has been sort of the rumors uh, swirling around. This had been going now for a couple months. We I think we may have alluded to this at some point in the past. Obviously, we also spent some time talking about Ant Financial and whether Ant was going to be subject to some kind of a prohibition along these lines. Uh, but uh, this executive order was issued, um, again, just a week after the election, essentially 10 days after the election. And, um, you know, this is, I think, um, so we're not going to we're not going to sort of recite all of the um, provisions here. But essentially, for those who are unfamiliar, what this does is it prohibits U.S. persons from trading or transacting in publicly traded securities or derivatives or securities that are derivative thereof um, of listed communist Chinese military companies. And there is an annex attached to the executive order, which lays out the initial list. It is the same list as what was published by the Department of Defense earlier this year relating to um, uh, 
relating to the same topic, identifying Chinese uh, communist Chinese military companies. So that is the starting point is that list essentially has just been absorbed into this executive order for initial purposes. In the future, it is contemplated that Secretary of Defense and more likely uh, the Secretary of Treasury will be identifying additional companies, uh, Chinese uh, communist Chinese military companies that would be uh, also subject to these same restrictions. Um, there is also, so that is the main provision is that as of January 11, 2021, such transactions in publicly traded securities by US persons are prohibited. Um, the one caveat there, then there's some provisions that also account for what happens in the future when new companies are named, because obviously the January 11th date will not hold there. So there's a 60 day window essentially that would uh, apply when new companies are listed. And then there is um, also essentially a, a, a divestiture provision that allows for the purposes of the next year, essentially, um, trading in those securities or transacting those securities in order to solely to divest, that is the language um, of the provision, um, that is permitted. So any divestiture transactions, right, November 11, 2021 is the key date there, and anything solely to divest permitted, uh, but everything else essentially uh, after that January 11th date is going to be um, prohibited for U.S. persons. So this is obviously scope-wise something that's uh, a bit different than anything we've seen in the past, um, targeting just securities transactions. And of course, the stated purpose here is that these companies are all acting uh, per China's civil, civil military integration policy, and they are raising capital from U.S. sources to aid in that. Therefore, U.S. individuals and companies are essentially financing the development of Chinese of China's military, which is, of course, in the eyes of the U.S. government, detrimental to U.S. national security interests. So, um, it is something that's that's a bit different there. So, than we've seen in the past. So, one thing that I'll um, and I'll throw a few of these out and, and then I'll kick it over to you, Tim. But so in the trade nerd world, we are aware and are privy to discussions that have that have sort of cropped up immediately about, um, you know, while what we just described sounds relatively straightforward, if not a bit, you know, unorthodox, let's say, for an executive order issued under IEP authorities uh, to target th this specific type of conduct. Um, I think there are a number of questions that have gone along with that have kind of come along with this because there wasn't really any guidance issued. And I think there's a clamoring for guidance, especially in advance of that January 11 date, which is rapidly approaching. Yeah. I'll just rattle off a couple of them, which is the um, the executive order seems to contemplate that only named entities would be subject to these restrictions. So not subsidiaries unless they're specifically named, which would be consistent with the way that the COTSA 231 list works, the Cuba Restricted Parties list works. Obviously not, um, it, there would be no sort of 50% rule that's being applied here. It, it would have to be a known uh, and listed party to be subject to. There's also some issues with the list that is attached from in the annex. You know, there is, a, there is like the Huawei is listed. Huawei is a commercial name for, is what is referred to sort of colloquially, but it is not an actual entity. So what are we, what, what is actually, what Huawei entity or entities are actually subject to this restriction? I don't know. I think a lot of people, a lot of other people don't know. We could guess, uh, but we don't, we don't know. It's not clear. 
Um, another question is sort of what's the scope of transactions that are in play here? Um, you know, are we talking about transactions? Is it prohibited to have transactions where the U.S. person has a beneficial interest in the security? Uh, or are U.S. persons across the board prohibited from being involved in any way in transactions um, re regarding the trading or this, the sale of these securities, meaning you couldn't process even if it's for a non-U.S. person. You couldn't be involved in any way in clearing or processing, facilitating. Exactly. What is the scope of that? That is not very clear based on this. Um, and, and, and of course, how, how would you know, investment advisors, banks, others in the, in the sort of chain that would be involved there, how are they going to, uh, you know, live up to their own fiduciary obligations and other contractual obligations if they're, if they're now prohibited from being involved in any way. So I think there's definitely a need for guidance there. There's also a question about indirect investments. So what happens if we're talking about um, a U.S. investment in a vehicle that's overseas, not in the U.S., that maybe indirectly holds securities or positions in some of these securities what what is that what do we make of that is that prohibited also are we talking about are we talking about if we're talking about publicly traded is that only on us exchanges is that non-traditional um sort of you know platforms in the us outside the us um you know what are we what are we talking about there there's not a, there's not specificity it's not defined within the executive order so i think everybody is expecting and hoping that there will be further guidance on this but i know that i've certainly gotten a number of questions in the past few weeks about well what do we make of this how does this um relate on some of some of these exact issues that i just flagged and so i'll throw it to tim to sort of just react generally to this and then sort of maybe highlight a few big open questions because i think this is one clearly we're going to have to revisit in the new year when we hopefully do get some guidance from ofac but what are your sort of initial thoughts on on gaps questions so, so some quick thoughts i mean so the the pentagon list concept and and law has been around for 20 years the, the National Defense Authorization Act of 1999, which was passed in the end of 1998, created the requirement that the Pentagon create a list of commun communist Chinese military companies that were doing business in the United States. That's the, the, the so-called list. But for the first 20 years that that law was in existence, there was no list. And then a list comes out last summer um, in June, and the Pentagon adds to the list in August, and I think they added to it one time recently. But we were getting questions initially, that list had no consequence. So being on that list, we can talk about it a little in the second segment, but but basically that list had no legal consequence. You were just on a list and, and the government could do with what it wanted. EO13959 creates a consequence now. So, so basically now as of January 11, 2021, U.S. persons can invest in the securities of these listed companies um, subject to, it's pro prohibited, it's a it'll be a crime, it'll be a regulatory offense to do that. I, I guess my, my take on this is, well, other than creating a consequence of being on the list, I mean, what's the point? It, 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 it seems to me that um, the, pr the purpose of sanctions is usually to change behavior. And if, if anybody thinks that uh, being put on this list is going to change the behavior in terms of military civil integration in China between these companies and the government, it won't do that any more than if China were to create a list and say any 
you, these are U.S. companies that we think are really integrated with the U.S. military, and therefore we're not going to allow Chinese the Chinese investors to invest in them. I mean, it would have basically no effect if that were going to happen, and I think it'll probably have no or minimal direct effect here. Although I guess we'll see. I mean, you know, some of these are some big companies, and it certainly um, will hurt them. But in it. By depriving them of some investments, but on the other hand, it also then makes them less accountable to U.S. persons. And so, if you drive U.S. persons out of the market, does that change behavior in terms of stopping the civil-military integration, or does it change behavior in in the sense that they just don't care what U.S. persons think at this point because they're not possible investors, and so they turn to to other markets where the investors might not have the same sorts of compliance policies, might not have the same sorts of of views on on these sorts of uh, human rights issues that that the U.S. has taken, and again, and it's something we'll talk about later on. But I think that is that's a that to me the issue is I, I'm not really sure what it accomplishes, and it might have it might have unintended consequences that are bad. The the one question that I have, um, uh, along with the ones that you listed, Brian, is how do you get off the list? Because normally, if you're listed by the Treasury Secretary or you're listed, it, 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 you go to OFAC and you file a delisting petition. But this is a Pentagon list. So if OFAC considers your delisting petition and they take you off the list, but the Pentagon disagrees and leaves you on the list, are you on the Pentagon list, but then off the OFAC list? Are you, they, they, it's it Because the de- Department of Defense isn't really involved in the delisting process as a normal matter, or at least not formally involved. I guess informally they can loop them in, but it seems like since it's the Department of Defense's list, you'd want to go get, get taken off their list, you'd go to the Department of Defense, but I don't think there's a procedure, I haven't seen one, to get off the list or taken off the list by DOD. Yeah, I mean, there, the definition the definition section in the EO contemplates clearly until such time as the Secretary of Defense rem- removes a person from the list or the Secretary of Treasury removes a person from the list. But I but I take your point that unlike, you know, the sort of normal SDN, rem- you know, removal process, what is the what is the process here? In particular, when we're talking about two agencies that might might have conflicting views and have their own. Um, agendas in terms of how to judge whether someone stays on or stays off. I would, I would think as a practical matter, and until this gets pushed or somebody challenges it or tries to actually pursue this, it'll be, um, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a muddle here in terms of how how you would best proceed. I would, yeah, I think it's a very it's a very good point. And, and then I would also add to the couple points you just raised, and um, you know, in terms of what is the impact here? I would be very curious to know what, um, and I haven't seen, and if it's out there, I would certainly be interested in seeing, um, you know, any hard data to suggest what the actual percentage of U.S. investment in the securities of any of these companies is at this point. I can I can imagine in some cases it'll be, could be substantial. In, in others, I would think it would be almost zero. Right. Uh, so, but I mean, that's just an educated guess, but I would, to your point about what is the real consequence here? I, I just, I think that's, that's not really a changing behavior on behalf of these listed companies. That's a change. Obviously the change in behavior is going to have to come from the investment community in the U S but what does that really mean? And how is this just sort of a, is it again, is it more symbolic than anything? We talk about this a lot. Like, is this, is this just a big grand symbolic move on the part of this administration on the way out the door to sort of do something that, um, you know, they can sort of claim is another sort of big blow against China or, 
is there more to it than that? How much is this really going to impact anything? One thing I would say, sort of my last thought on this is to the points that I raised earlier about some of the ambiguities, certainly as to what the reach of this is and how much US persons can or cannot be involved in transactions, uh, what those transactions are, et cetera, um, even when they are not sort of the direct beneficiary, let's say, of the, of the ownership interest in the securities. I assume, as we often assume, that part of the goal here, part of the object here on behalf of this EO and the, and the folks who are going to be administering it is to basically create strategic ambiguity where there will now be a big snarl around any kind of trading in securities or derivatives relating to any of these companies anywhere around the world, you know, sort of rightfully or wrongly. And even if we get a set of FAQs from OFAC that clears up some of these issues, which I suspect we will in the next month or so, it's not going to clear up all these issues. And as a matter, as we know, as a matter of, of uh, you know, various entities' own risk tolerance and de-risking, it may not matter because they may see these companies on a list and then say, well, we don't want to have anything to do with this because we want to steer well clear of any potential regulatory well, or legal risk in the U.S. And so thank you. We're not going to be part of this anymore. We're, we're just dropping this all together. So I assume that that is a big part of this. Um, that is never going to be articulated necessarily. But but I assume that that at the end of the day is probably a big objective here. Yeah. I mean, I'm already getting a lot of questions from clients who deal with parties on this list and they're they're they are at least presumptively treating this as an SDN list so essentially now you know that they then get you know some legal advice that explains them what this list really does but i think that for a lot of people out there this list is confusing because it is so different than anything that ofac has really done in the past and when you have a list with ofac for the most part um U.S. companies assume if, if they're on the it's, list, we can't deal with it's, them. It's blocking. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about blocking sanctions. Yeah, and not the case here. So, right. I think in that way, that's a good analogy. And I think also similar to what we see with companies that go on the entity list where immediately, especially companies that are based outside the U.S., may have the misimpression that they can no longer deal with them or that U.S. authorities are going to come after them no matter what kind of business they're doing with them and, and, and the sort of specificity of the restrictions relating just to items subject to U.S., um, you know, uh, subject to the AR and subject to U.S. export controls have to be explained. I think here that's similar is that the scope here is intended, it seems on its face, to be relatively narrow. But I think we know in practice it's going to have a broader effect than that. So um, with that, I think that's actually a good transition to item number two, which does talk now about another list and another list that, again, may or may not actually exist or come into existence. So with that, let me turn it over to Tim. Thank you, Brian. And let's let's kind of revisit. We've talked about this change a bit, but I think you have to understand kind of the backdrop in order to understand this phantom MEU list. So back in uh, June, in another China-related trade action, the uh, administration and uh, and specifically the Commerce Department amended uh, one provision of the uh, Export Administration Regulations that deals with exports to military end users or for military end uses in China, Russia, and Venezuela. That's that's 15 CFR 744.21 for those of you scoring at home. So by amend the the amend the amendment did a number of things, but the the main 
changed from a trade perspective was that it, it made it, it created a licensing requirement for lots of US origin goods um, to be sent to Chinese military end users. That was not previously part of the, the export regulations. So now, now if you are going to send goods from the United States, export to a Chinese military end user, you need a license. And there's a presumption that the license will be denied. Well, who's a Chinese military end user? Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Those are, those are pretty obvious. But, but what happens when you have a, an entity whose forms and functions uh, include some military end uses, um, but, but they're like research universities. So maybe they do some military research um, and given the civilian military integration, that is potentially a lot of China. And so we've talked on the show about that in a number of other episodes about the, the, the ambiguity that created and, and the Commerce Department apparently agreed. They did a bunch of uh, guidance on this. They FAQs, 14 FAQs, maybe I think there were more FAQs that came out. There's a lot of FAQs trying to explain how you determine whether or not a company in China is within the scope of a military end user. And one tool that people were using was this Pentagon list. And as I said, it had no direct consequences, but if you're on a list prepared by the US Department of Defense that says these companies are affiliated with the Chinese military, a lot of people thought, well, that's probably a red flag that this is a Chinese military end user. Although we've received um, conflicting uh, word from the from the Commerce Department about whether that was the case. And so still just lots of chaos as to who a Chinese military end user was. And so recently, November 22nd, a story comes out in Reuters saying that the Trump administration was preparing a list of Chinese military end users. And that makes some sense because it is very hard to tell. And if particularly if it was a, if they're on the list, then you presume that they are a military end user. And if they're not on the list, they probably aren't one. Seems like a, a, a relatively reasonable approach to take. Um, and the, the story indicated that the list was going to be coming out soon, that they were finalizing this list. Uh, and then no list has come. So it's November 22nd when this story comes out. It's December 10th now. Um, and the, the, the report was that Reuters had exclusively gained a copy of the Federal Register notice that, that was going to describe this change. Um, you and I have seen that notice now, but it's not a notice. And so, so apparently what happened was that someone from the administration leaked a copy of this as though it's a done deal to Reuters, but it's not apparently a done deal. And the list hasn't been fully vetted. The, there's the, one of the stories quotes uh, Kevin Wolf, who was in the, the previous administration in the Commerce Department, is saying that it was, you know, it's been vetted by an advisory group, but it's not final yet. And so it's not clear when it's going to become final, if it's going to become final, but there are lists floating around out there that have a number of Chinese companies on them that are now at least arguably military end users, although on the other hand, they're arguably not because the list isn't final and some companies may be taken off the list. It's not clear it's been vetted. And so it's it, it I think the idea is actually a pretty good one if the list is a good one, but I, I think that um, something fishy is going on in connection with this list. And I'm not sure what it is, but I do know that it is, is not helping in an area where there was already a lot of chaos. Yeah, so I think to to Tim's point, the the something fishy, 
there is a lot of speculation that this was leaked because after the election, the the sort of uh, incumbent administration and the powers that be realized they weren't going to have time to finish the list and properly vet it and get it finalized to inauguration day. And so they leaked it in part because they wanted to force the hand of the incoming administration and let it be known to the world that such a list was in process and was uh, ready or almost ready to be deployed. And, and so that the incoming administration would, you know, appear soft on China if they were not to actually follow through and issue some form of this list. Whether that is true or whether that holds is very unclear. As you know, as Tim said, typically when a pre-publication version of, of something like this is floating around and circulating, it means that the issuance is imminent. That does not appear to be the case at the moment. It has been now a couple of weeks, more than more than a couple of weeks since uh, this sort of surfaced, and since you know Tim and I have seen this list or version of this list, and so uh, yeah, it's a big question mark. I, I would say that uh, just a couple of thoughts on the list itself. Let's assume for the moment that such a list is eventually going to be issued, which is by, again, by no means it seems a certainty, but let's assume that it, it, it is. Um, to Tim's point, there has been a lot of uncertainty. We have dealt with a number of issues, you know, on behalf of clients over the last six months since um, the new MEU rules went into place in June, where it has been very tricky to determine whether or not sort of a non-traditional kind of other military end user is at the other end of a transaction when you have a cover, when you have covered items under supplement two that are going to someplace in China, is it is it or is it not a military end user? That is a vexing question that a lot of it's people hard. have. It's very hard. It's very hard and it's very unclear. And I think commerce understands that. And they've we've had discussions with them. Many trade nerd colleagues have had discussions with them on these. We've submitted license applications. We've sought guidance. All all the rest of it. So on the one hand, to the extent that they can provide some certainty by putting together a list that would be, it's kind of a junior version, uh, a junior varsity version of the entity list in some ways. It's the, we have been referring to it as, again, the, the phantom MEU list, um, just among ourselves. But if it were in, in, the, in the version of the, um, of the regs that we saw, it contemplated that the end user review committee would be part of constituting this list and reviewing and vetting and approving parties that go on this list. So this would clearly what is contemplated is a fairly formal process where um, companies would have to be sort of nominated and put up for inclusion on the list and then they would be vetted and, and added after due consideration by the, the ERC. Well, um, I mean, it's it's really akin to an entity listing. I yeah, mean, it's very it close. Is. The only difference is that there's no licensing requirement for right. EAR 99 goods, but otherwise it's really close. Right, right, because it would only be, of course, for these items, it would only be for the supplement two items, and it would be um, this, this, you know, this defined list of parties. Um, I would say that what we've seen, though, is that this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. The, 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 the version we've seen is this is not the sum total of all military end users, right? So there's obviously traditional Here's kind of in the other category, the, the less traditional, less obvious category of military and users, but do not take this to be exhaustive. You still have to do all of your due diligence. You still have to make your own judgments about that. So on the one hand, yes, perhaps if this list comes to pass, it eases compliance burdens by making it clear cut that there are a number 
um, of companies that are now considered, yes, definitively, these are military end users. But on the other hand, it doesn't exactly clear up the problem if, if the same, if again, if this remains the approach, if it does come out, if this remains the approach, I think companies are still going to be on the line to make these decisions themselves and to have adequate due diligence in place to be able to assess whether or not uh, an end customer or other counterparty that they're exporting to in China is or is not a military end user. So it doesn't, it certainly does not sort of address all issues or clear up all questions if that is the case. Well, and this reg has made it harder to do that sort of due diligence that commerce wants you to do. And and so, you know, not surprisingly, after the the regulation went into place and civilian, outwardly civilian looking companies were potentially within the scope of the military end user rule. What did those companies do? Well, they went to their website and removed any reference to any any work that they'd done with the Chinese military. And so at least right after the rule came out, you could actually find this stuff in the public sphere and, and um, find these sorts of connections. Now it's become much harder. It's still possible. And so it's not, I'm not trying to say that it's impossible to do the due diligence, but it, it is, it, it does appear to me anyway, that the, that there are a number of Chinese companies that are trying to conceal any link to the Chinese military um, for good reason in some sense. I mean, it may be at a purely, you know, U.S. companies do work for the U.S. military and they don't, try and, and and hide it because there's you know they're they're willing to take the the connection but th- that doesn't make them a military company but in China that I think is going to be the presumption now if you're if it's on your website that you've done work for the Chinese military from a US compliance perspective you've got to at least treat that as a red flag that this company is potentially a Chinese military end user so it's yeah. it's it's having unintended consequences already and I, I think this MEU list is not going to make things any easier it sounds like yeah so uh, I think we'll clearly we will be coming back to this at some point I, I uh, perhaps this list could this phantom list could die a quiet death behind closed doors at the Commerce Department and we will never hear word of it again. I think that's unlikely. So uh, stay tuned on this one. We're, we'll likely be coming back to this in in January or February once uh, the once the new administration is is in place. So um, with that, let's s- stick with China and let's go to our final topic of the day, which is what's up with TikTok. So uh, I think we addressed this on uh, a couple episodes ago, just kind of checking back in with what's happening with TikTok given that some key dates were coming up with respect to both the uh, the executive order kind of prohibiting banning TikTok sort of in and of itself, and then the executive order that was issued um, under CFIUS authorities to uh, hasten the divestiture of TikTok um, from ByteDance. And so two main things have happened, and I think we are no closer to having sort of definitive answers as to what what is going to happen with TikTok. Although I certainly have some views at this point, I'm sure Tim does as well. So two big things have happened recently. So number one, uh, the the district court in D.C., where if you recall, that was where the very first uh, injunction was issued relating to TikTok, just before the first app store related prohibition was going to go into effect, or right around that time in September. Uh, late September, that at the time there was a PI, a preliminary injunction that was issued just with respect to prohibition number one, which related to um, the app stores. Uh, essentially, the judge there tabled uh, for later consideration the remainder of those, um, the remainder of those prohibitions. I think on the thought that 
perhaps the divestiture was going to get resolved in the intervening time and there was going to be no need to reach it. But lo and behold, he did have to reach it. Um, and just this week on Monday, after additional brief, briefing and argument by the parties, there was a, a memorandum opinion issued that that preliminarily enjoined all bases of the um, of the prohibitions that were issued by the Secretary of Commerce, the um, the commerce identifications as they are known in the in the uh, opinion. Um, and this is a pretty. I would encourage anybody who is interested in this for a couple of reasons to read this opinion. It is a very thorough and thoughtful opinion. It, it, kudos to Judge Nichols and to, as Tim and I both know, as former law clerks, to his law clerks for having done a very fine job in putting this together and being very thorough and very thoughtful and considered in how they march through the, what are very tricky issues. Essentially, what, what the ruling comes down to, what the opinion comes down to is um, the prohibitions violate IEPA because it is an indirect regulation of personal communications and informational materials, which are carved out of IEPA. And the, the uh, prohibitions also violate the Administrative Procedures Act because no reasonable alternatives were considered in issuing the prohibitions. That is, in a nutshell, that is an oversimplification, but that is essentially what was concluded. Those are, I will say, I mean, th that, is, that is pretty, you know, we have never seen an executive order like this. So in some ways, the fact that we now see a ruling like this is not surprising. But at the same time, this is pretty groundbreaking stuff in this world, in this sphere. And so I think everybody should pay attention to this, who cares about how IEPA is used, how it's used to support the president's authority, sanctions authority, the authority to regulate all kinds of things in the national security and foreign policy space. This is pretty, this is pretty extensive, pretty striking. How thoroughly I will just no no shots to the to the government uh, lawyers certainly who were defending this, but I mean this was a this was a, a drubbing, a, a, you know a pretty pretty thorough beatdown by the court at the you know a very obviously a well argued well presented. Um, case by TikTok's lawyers. Hats off to them as well. But this is a, this is, I mean, look, this could all be undone eventually by the DC Circuit or the Supreme Court, perhaps. However, I have some theories about what's going to happen next. So I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. The other piece of this that I will bring up is the CFIUS side of things. So everything has gone quiet on the CFIUS side. If you recall, back in September, President Trump essentially said, the plan to, for divestiture, I'm good with it you know, great, this is all gonna get resolved. And recall the August 14th executive order had a 90 day time limit, which came and went in November. That was extended to late November. That was then extended to early December. And now nothing has happened. The original executive order contemplated at most 120 days by which this would all be continued to be pending before the whole thing would, would potentially be blown up. That date, the 120-day date, is tomorrow. That's December 12th. And there has been nothing in the public record about this. What has been reported in the, in the news media is that talks kind of went quiet around the time of the election for several weeks. And then, and, and this has also come out in some of the court filings, is that there was just no response from Treasury and the other authorities at CFIUS. And then in recent weeks, apparently talks have resumed. And so the same contingent that was involved earlier, Oracle, Walmart, 
and the private equity firms in the US, ByteDance on the other side and some other uh, investors on the Chinese side have all been re-engaged to try to resolve these issues, which presumably relate to, again, the data, the data security, data privacy issues of US users and how much stake ByteDance is going to retain in whatever this reconstituted, reconfigured, realigned entity is. I think those clearly are the two issues. There is no resolution on that. What I think is going to happen is this is going to get resolved on the CFIUS side at some point. They are going to just stay quiet until it gets resolved. I think everybody is so sufficiently invested, it's going to get resolved. I don't think even if it stretches on beyond the inauguration day, I don't think that there is going to be... you know, President Biden's going to come in and just sort of undo all of this. I think there, it's going to get resolved. There will be some kind of um, some kind of deal reached at some point, um, because I think what has been shown is that the executive orders those are those are dead in the water at the moment. And I don't think that the government is going to be quick to try to resuscitate those at any point. And they may just let them sort of die quietly and sort of go away. I can't imagine that we're going to see come you know January twenty first a desire to to continue to press this issue all the way up the chain um, through the through the courts and you know and make even more bad precedent for the government in this regard. I just don't see that. That just doesn't make any sense to me. So I think that the court actions, while they will continue to kind of chug along in due course because they have to to some respect in some respect with respect to appeals and other things, I think at the end of the day, those are the on the TikTok bite dance side of things. They will all kind of die quietly and go away, and the CFIUS side of things will ultimately be the resolution of this. That is educated speculation because there is very little being said about this right now in the public on the public record. But that is my best guess. So, Tim, I throw it to you about your thoughts on all of this. Yeah, I mean, let me start by agreeing with you, but that I thought Judge Nichols, who is a Trump appointee, um, did a really nice job assessing the 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 permissibility under the APA and under the under IEPA of of the the executive order that directed the Commerce Department to go prohibit certain transactions related to to ByteDance. So I thought it, it's it's actually I think a very important decision, not only well done but very important in the sense that it really does provide meaningful judicial inquiry into whether or not the an an order that was an executive order that relates to sanctions and then the administration of that order by one of the agencies really adhered to um the purpose the least restrictive means in in this instance and you know that was not the term of art but that was the apa standard they they didn't consider reasonable alternatives and then it, it really is important with respect to the Berman Amendment. I mean, it breathes life into the Berman Amendment that OFAC had kind of not thought was there and 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 really reads the Berman Amendment, I think as it was written, it does a nice job of textual analysis and it doesn't defer to the Commerce Department's uh, or the Treasury Department's uh, interpretation of the Berman Amendment because it, as the judge pointed out, all they did was basically Re- cut and paste, yeah, cut and paste the statute, but then then wanted to come in and say, but that's our regulation and we should get deference in how we construe our own regulation. And it's like, well, you can't just cut and paste the statute, then read your work and tell me that I should defer to you on your own work. Like I can read the statute too, and we'll 
we'll discuss together what it means. I'm not going to defer to you and just basically let you guys decide what the statute means because you were able to cut and paste it and put it into the Federal Register, which I thought was I, I thought was absolutely right. I, I, agree. I, I do think this litigation is not going anywhere in my view. I mean, the SG has to weigh in on an appeal. Um, this SG might be okay with it, but I can't imagine that as the administration's change, that there's gonna be a lot of stomach to fight this um, any further than it's been fought. So I, I doubt that this is gonna, um, I doubt that there's gonna be a lot more more litigation on on this side of things. On the, I, I agree with you that CFIUS is where it's gonna all come down. I, I really don't have much of a prediction. I, I could see a scenario where, you know, they keep talking and they come to a deal. I do think that given how the election played out that that ByteDance and TikTok have a pretty strong incentive to delay and hope that if they stretch it into a Biden administration, they might get a, a different audience. So I, I do think that that is kind of the leverage that will will prevent a deal. But but on the other hand, um, they, they they might be able to get a good deal from the Trump administration as the clock is running out. And, and so they might decide they, they might decide that now is the time to to do that. I think there is I, I haven't I didn't check this out before we started recording, but I, I my recollection is that there was a D.C. Circuit administrative case uh, challenging the CFIUS action as well that I think is still pending. So, we so talked, that that is another yeah, potential we, roadblock. We talked about that. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that the last time, and and that was essentially filed. Our I, my understanding, and I haven't looked at I haven't looked at the briefs in that in a, in a while. But my understanding was that was filed in advance of the ninety day uh, the ninety day deadline as yep. sort of a placeholder in the event that in the event that there was the prohibition was sort of tried to be act, effectuated immediately. Um, so I don't believe that there's been. Um, I haven't, and I haven't checked it, but I, but I don't think there's been much movement on that. I think yeah. it was just sort of parked for the time but when, being. But yeah. the, but the lawsuit looked real to me in the sense yeah. that, that basically, if you go back and you look at the, the, the CFIUS executive order and the CFIUS findings, um, you, you had a, you had essentially a, an investment by ByteDance in Musical.ly, but then a, an, a, a CFIUS determination that really went to TikTok and the disconnect was the challenge. And I, that struck me as a, as a potentially viable legal theory. And so it's not like, it's not like ByteDance doesn't have some leverage to not do the CFIUS, um, to, to not agree to anything that the government suggests on the CFIUS ground, because they might, they're fighting it in court President Biden might not agree with President Trump as to the right solution here from a CFIUS perspective. And so there is a lot of incentive to stall and maybe get a better audience or maybe win this in court. But on the other hand, um, they did have a deal. And it may be that that, that, that if that's a deal ByteDance can live with. It would rather take the known deal that it's OK with rather than kick this off into the unknown and maybe do worse. Yeah, I think timing is a huge black box. I have no idea what kind of timing we're looking at. I agree with you that I think even if even if there's maybe not a a prospect of on, you know, early in the Biden administration that he or his um you know cabinet would come in and say, okay, we're gonna just, you know, we take it all back. It's fine. Right. Like we're gonna walk away. That's not gonna happen. But you're right that a, maybe a friendlier or slightly different view on what the right outcome here would be uh, TikTok and ByteDance certainly could, I, I think, be counting on that to some degree. But that being said, there, this has been so long in the making that I, you know, I don't, I just don't know if they're close now or if the government is going to continue to insist that they're going to impose, you know, and 
the the order, um, then we're going to be in a different position. You're right that the DC Circuit litigation does kind of give them a little bit of a a little bit of a backstop, perhaps, or or assurance that perhaps it it couldn't go into effect immediately, but it would um, it still complicates things considerably. So again. I, I didn't really think that, uh, you know, five months ago or four months ago when we first started talking about this sort of in earnest that we'd necessarily be here at the end of the year still talking about it. But lo and behold, we are. And, um, you know, we'll just have to we'll just have to wait and see and, and uh, you know, keep keep checking the app store to make sure that TikTok is still available for your updates uh, so you can get all your favorite videos. But we'll, we'll um, just wait and see. We'll wait and see, uh, as with everything else. So so with that, uh, let's close down. That's sort of the main portion of the program. We're going to just hit two topics pretty quickly here and then wrap up. So uh, let me throw it to Tim to talk a little bit more about Iran. So we're pivoting from China for at least one segment and talking to start the lightning round. And then uh, we'll go back to China to end. Well, the way the way I see them, the two is related, and 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 this is not an unusual phenomenon when the when the president's change when the president's transition, and particularly when a new president is coming in of a different party, as is happening here, it is pretty common that the outgoing administration will um, do all sorts of last minute things um, to try and uh, get their policy, lock their policy down as best they possibly can. There, there's even a term for it, midnight regulations. Um, and it actually comes, dates all the way back to Marbury versus Madison, where where, um, where, where there were a bunch of midnight appointments, one of which was at issue in Marbury versus Madison by President Adams the first time that a president uh, went out of office and a new president came in from a different party. So, so it's not a new phenomenon. But in both uh, China that we've been talking about, all the things that we've been talking about with, with respect to China, and, and in Iran, um, there is an attempt going on by the Trump administration to lock in its sanctions policies. In China, we've talked about all of the things that they were doing um, in the regulatory realm. Uh, here, uh, it's a little bit different. So, so President Biden or President-elect Biden ran part of part of his trade platform was that he was going to re-enter the nuclear deal if he became president. And as we've talked about in other shows, the the roadblock to that is that after President Trump pulled the United States out of the deal, Iran complied with its nuclear obligations for a while, but it is now pretty far out of compliance with its nuclear obligations. So it needs to come back into compliance. That's President President-elect Biden's policy is that if Iran comes back into compliance, the U.S. will rejoin the deal. And President Trump obviously knows that, and the Israelis, who have been very opposed to the nuclear deal, know that. And the Trump administration has been uh, taking all sorts of actions to uh, make it harder and harder for a President-elect Biden to re-enter the nuclear deal. And in the midst of that, uh, the the there was at the end of November. Uh, there was an assassination of the uh, what is a, the, the person who was apparently known as the father of Iran's nuclear program. His name is Moshin um, Fakhrizadeh, and I, I apologize if I'm not getting that pronunciation correct. But but he was assassinated. Um, not clear by whom. No one has claimed responsibility, but uh, the Israelis are suspected and have not denied responsibility. And um, 
there, the, the reporting on this talked about it, and I think someone was quoted, might even been a, a for, former national security advisor, saying that this, in fact, was really an assassination attempt on the nuclear deal. And that's what it has the the, the makings of, is that the, the, the killing was carried out to try and poison the well so badly that the nuclear deal could never go back into place. Uh, and And one of the things that at least in the reporting that I saw commented on the, the comments on this were that Iran has actually not really escalated, at least not to this point, because it, it does, it can read the, the statements of President-elect Biden and his national security team just as easily as we can. And apparently, uh, at least the current government in, in Iran seems to understand that if they respond to this by walking away, they'll be doing exactly what the assassination was designed to produce, and so so far things seem to be things seem to be not have not knocked too far off track. But there is another factor there that I'm sure that that um, all of the parties are considering, and that is Iran has an election coming up in June, and you know the nuclear deal was controversial here. It was also controversial within the Iranian government as well, and so you had at least it's reported that you had kind of a dispute between the hardliners who thought that no deal with the, with the United States uh, was was worth having and the, the more moderates, uh, including President Rouhani, who, who thought that it was. And and so so uh, this this sort of action by the U.S. and Israel strengthens the hand of the hardliners because it does make the U.S. seem less trustworthy and, and potentially uh, makes it harder, even if the current government in Iran wants to try and get back into the deal, it strengthens the hand of the hardliners. At least that's one possibility from that. So so that's, I think that's in a nutshell where the sanctions uh, consequences play down. But I think, you know, it's not, this is not the only thing that the Trump administration has done to try and poison the well. There's just a huge number of sanctions going on against, against Iran, kind of uh, trying to sanction as many companies in the, as possible in Iran before the it, Trump administration runs out, many of which the sanctions are new. They weren't in place at the time of the JCPOA. And so now the the sanctions against Iran are, are are well beyond anything that was in place in 2016 when the JCPOA first came into play. So we haven't just pulled out; we've amped up, you know, maximum pressure on on Iran in a way that uh, goes well beyond the nuclear deal. And I think this is one aspect of this. And it, it, this one, unlike the um, the the assassination that we were talking about, I think on the first episode or second episode a, a year ago, um, of of the head of the Revolutionary Guard, th that was targeted at the region generally. This is really targeted at at you know the JCPOA and and one, there I have seen quotes that said that they were the intended target of this assassination. That it was the agreement. Yeah, I don't have too much more to add to that. Just uh, agree with everything Tim said. I think how this reverberates in terms of internal Iranian politics and what impact it may or may not have in terms of the upcoming election is probably the critical factor here, quite frankly. Uh, you know, and to be clear, the U.S. obviously has not taken credit for this, has not, it's not even really assumed that they were behind this directly at least, but if, you know, Israel was, I think the thought is, or the sort of conventional wisdom in the intelligence community is that uh, they they probably did that with coordination slash the blessing of the U.S. to some degree, uh, and so you know everybody uh, on on this side, the Iran hardliners in in you in the U.S. were kind of quick to applaud this, and 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 I think that's just another kind of. Um, you know, stick in the eye of of uh, of the deal and of the those in Iran who supported the deal. 
so how it shakes out will will be you know it will be some number of months before we really know. The other thing I would add is, you know, we have just over a month left before uh, the official changeover to the Biden administration. Uh, reports are coming out that you know President Trump has largely decided he's just kind of leaving Iran alone for his own purposes at this point and has more, more or less abdicated responsibility of Iran to Secretary Pompeo. In fact, I saw a quote that said something that reported something along the lines that he directed the secretary that he could do whatever he wanted with Iran short of starting World War III. Uh, so we have no idea what is coming in the next month. And I think it's nobody true. should nobody should nobody should discount the fact that there could be a lot more, uh, you know, sort of uh, incendiary actions that may get taken that are, are directly uh, tied to the U.S. So we will see. And at the end of this, we'll see where that all leaves us. But I think for now, this is just another data point in the murky, the murky future of the U.S. Uh, potentially reengaging on the JCPOA. Uh, so with that, let's pivot back to China and just want to touch very briefly on a couple of designations or a couple of sort of tranches of designations that just came out earlier this week. So earlier or in the past few days, so earlier this week, there was a series of designations that came from OFAC that were targeted toward uh, Hong Kong and issued under the Hong Kong executive order that were relating to, as it was reported, it was relating to the disqualification of opposition uh, members of the legislature in Hong Kong uh, and who were essentially disqualified. And then there was apparently mass um, uh, resignations that kind of came along with that. So this is sort of another signal that uh, the sort of pro the pro China aspects are being are sort of overwhelming any sort of dissenting voices in 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 Hong Kong's government. Uh, and so there were a number of I think there were 13 or 14 Chinese officials that were added to the SDN list um, as a result in connection with that action. Uh, sort of close, uh, close on the heels of that. Within a few days, there was also unrelated. Uh, there was also some designations, several entities, and several vessels that were added um, relating to uh, exports of coal from North Korea, which, of, which, as anybody who follows this knows, is a very important export and revenue source for the North Korean regime. Uh, and China was in particular called out. Uh, in the press release that was issued by uh, the Treasury Department relating to that action, so I think the I think the main the main point I want to make or the main thought I want to lob over to you, Tim, is you know we talked a lot throughout the year about whether um, whether the sanctions tool, frankly, is being overused and and whether it's being used in a in a sort of sufficiently strategic manner to have. The intended consequences that uh, the policymakers here in the U.S. might might have in mind, and you know, we've seen this goes back to when the first designations came out against Hong Kong. Uh, Carrie Lam, the head administrator in Hong Kong, was targeted, and she sort of laughed it off and said, "Why do I care? I'm not going to go to the U.S. and I don't, um, and I don't, you know, have any U.S. bank accounts." Uh, and, you know, I would imagine that the reaction among these individuals is largely the same with respect to North Korea. Clearly, there's not really been any deterrent effect that's had, I think, in the longstanding 
uh, push to increase enforcement of sanctions with respect to North Korea and adding additional entities in China to the list that are privy to those activities. Um, we see that in other parts of the world as well, where there are reports that uh, you know there are tankers of Venezuelan oil that are that are sailing right now. I think China was linked to those those shipments and and other countries that we know. Uh, seem to be just completely flouting and ignoring sanctions um, that are in place relating to those regimes that the U.S. has has targeted. So, my question to you is: Do these, um, you know, what do we make of these actions? And do we think that the incoming administration will sort of take any kind of a different tact with respect to how vigorously it 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 sanctions and adds people to lists as opposed to, let's say, bring actual enforcement actions against people who might be violating the sanctions because we have seen perhaps a bit of a slowdown on that side of things. Um, what, do we, what do we think this foretells, if anything? So I, both of these sanction programs, I think I can, I, I can defend in the sense that, uh, you know, the Hong Kong program is a traditional sanctions program in the sense that the U.S. is trying to change China's behavior towards Hong Kong. Um, they feel like China is going back on the the one country, two systems agreement um, years and years before it was due to I- expire. And the behavior change is to try and keep people in the Hong Kong government and people who are in the China in the Chinese government, the PRC government, from taking actions with respect to Hong Kong that violate Hong Kong's autonomy. And you know, they've had some effect. I mean, I saw a story a couple of weeks ago from where Carrie Lam was interviewed and said that she now has to keep piles of cash at home and she's unable to open a bank account anywhere. Um, now she was kind of trying to brush it off and suggest that it's no big deal because she has piles of cash at home and the government's now paying her her salary in cash. But boy, I'm guessing that if all things being equal, she'd prefer not to have big piles of cash at home. I hope she has some security at her house now that she's announced that in the paper. Um, and so, so like it, it does. I I would guess that if I were in the Hong Kong government and I were in the Chinese government, I'd be anxious not to have my name associated with any measures relating to Hong Kong and and limiting Hong Kong's authority, uh, in, in, you know, taking actions with respect to protesters, that sort of thing. And so I, I can defend the Hong Kong sanctions policy in the abstract. China's a huge con- country and trying to change China's behavior, particularly on what it views as a matter of internal um, politics is, is, and, inter- and internal discussions is probably not that likely. But I, I could see this being combined with you know, diplomacy, which I don't think is really going on here, to, to make a difference in terms of making China cautious in terms of taking actions against protesters, taking further actions to diminish Hong Kong's authority. So I, I like the program. I, I don't think that it's being administered in a way that's realistically and that its goals are, are realistic. I, with respect to North Korea, again, you know, I think we've lost the point, but the the and maybe there is no point anymore because North Korea does have a, a nuclear a number of nuclear missiles, and so so maybe the 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 idea idea now is to start negotiations to talk about how to limit the the reach of those and and dangle the sanctions potentially as a as an option if if North Korea will at least agree to some limits on its ability to expand its nuclear program, but but it. Right now, it's just not clear to me um, what the point is. There are U.S. and U.N. sanctions. They're being pretty widely violated, uh, as as best I can tell. Um, you know, and I think OFAC and and UN think the same thing. And and 
what what are a few more enforcement actions going to do that? I, right. It's just not clear to me. I, I don't know what the what, end game is. To what end? Yeah. To what end? I think is, I think to what end is really the question that I wanted to pose with both of these. Uh, you know, agree that I think the goals of the Hong Kong program are noble, and perhaps if administered in a smart way, and perhaps if there's multilateral support that could come in to sort of apply similar pressure from other allies, that could make a difference, perhaps in the long term. But as as things are proceeding now and as it's being administered now with just you know a dozen new names popping up on the list every month or two months i i just don't despite you know carrie lamb and her piles of cash i just don't see that as being a massive win for the us in terms of uh the deterrent effect that it's having so anyway i just wanted to sort of throw that out there no those are big questions for the lightning round but just wanted to kind of end on that before we uh, and fitting that in our last kind of regular episode before we conclude for the year that we end with China, um, because we have spent so much time talking about it this year. So and piles of cash and piles of cash, because that's that's ultimately what, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's what it's all about. Right. So um, that, I think, concludes uh, concludes the pod for today. Um, we uh, will be back, as I said, in two weeks with. Uh, what will be our year-end top 10 uh, pod So that we're going to do in lightning round style. Um, so we're going to keep each topic to each of those 10 topics we're going to try to do in five minutes or less. We're going to try to, we, we had pretty good success in staying lightning when we did our all lightning round episode. We're going to, we're going to try to stick to that for the last episode as well. Something, something for all of you, all of our loyal listeners uh, to nibble on over the holidays and, and into the new year. And so, uh, so with that, uh, Tim, anything before we close? Stay sanctions free. Stay well, everybody, and stay sanctions free. We'll see everybody in two weeks. Until Bye. then, thank you. Bye. 